0: Good morning. My name is Jamie Borchick. I'm part of the teaching team here. And it's great to have you with us this morning. Um, Quick shout out, Tuesday this week is a big day. Um, Pastor Jason is getting older. So I'm not going to tell you how old he's getting, but he's getting older. So if you see him this week, congratulate him on getting older. Uh, His birthday is Tuesday. So happy birthday to him. All right. Anybody know what this is? not a spreadsheet. This is an explanation of benefits form from our insurance provider. This is one of the many EOBs that we received from our insurance company this summer after the birth, birth of our son, Archer. And uh, y'all have gotten these before, right? You know all about these, the EOB. This is what your insurance company sends you to tell you all the stuff they're not going to pay for on your behalf, right? And uh, sometimes calling this an explanation of benefits is a little generous, right? Like uh, you spent eight minutes with that doctor, and uh, they're going to cover some of it, but you still owe one hundred and sixty-three dollars. Nice, Th- thanks, thanks, insurance company. Way to go! So, uh, why this morning am I telling you about explanation of benefits? Great question, great question. Well, the reason is because this morning we are in Romans chapter five, verses one through eleven. And Romans 5, 1 through 11 is essentially an explanation of benefits form. That's what it is. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there, Romans 5, 1 through 11. But you know, the explanation of benefits is this summary of what uh, an insurance provider is going to cover on your behalf. It's a document that spells out the benefits that you've received because you're insured with them. And in Romans 5, 1 through 11, that's what we've got. So turn there. And uh, you may remember that we've been in Romans since September. Uh, we took a little break for Advent and the New Year, but now we are back. So you can read it with me, Romans 5, 1-11. through 11. I'd ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God here in this new year. Romans 5, 1-11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Y'all, do you know what this is? You hold in your hands in Romans 5, 1-11, an explanation of benefits form from our great God and King. Let's pray and then we'll talk about it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. And I pray this morning as we open up this text, you would open our eyes to see the wonder, the beauty, the glory of all that you've accomplished for us through Jesus. Give us ears to hear this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can grab a seat. So this text is essentially a Christian explanation of benefits. Notice the benefits here. In verse 1, we have peace. In verse 2, grace and then hope. More hope in verses 4 and 5. Love in verses 5 and 8. Salvation in verses 9 and 10. And reconciliation, which is another way of saying peace, in verse 11. Peace, grace, hope, love, salvation. These are the benefits we see in this text. And these are the kinds of benefits that our world desperately seeks. Consider peace, for example. Nowadays, it seems like everybody and their dog is doing yoga or trying meditation in a quest for peace. Starbucks just announced that it's going to start paying for subscriptions to the app Headspace so that all of its employees across the world can practice mindfulness and meditation. And if that's not your jam... Old school escapes like the TV, the refrigerator, and the bottle are just as common and popular as ever. We do all kinds of things in our quest for peace. We long for peace. Or consider love. Think about the popularity of rom-coms and dating apps like Tinder and Bumble. Or the cultural narrative that says you're not complete until you're in a romantic relationship. Especially for you singles out there. The quest for love can so easily become the defining quest of your life. You're nobody until you're with somebody, right? We long for love. Or consider hope. In our world today, I think it may be hope for which we most deeply long. We are faced with a constant news cycle that tells us we're on the brink of political or ecological disaster. We're facing a constitutional crisis... And uh, Greta Thunberg has alerted us that our house is on fire. Elon Musk is hustling to build a new civilization on Mars so that we have somewhere to go when this world burns down. On a macro level, we are scrambling to try to fix the world and save humanity. We long for these benefits, but we're not really sure they're ever going to come. In his recent editorial reviewing the last decade... Ross Douthat of the New York Times called the 2010s the decade of disillusionment. The decade of disillusionment. And I think that's an apt summary of where we're at. In our collective quest for peace, love, hope, and ultimately salvation, we so often find ourselves in despair, disappointed, discontented, and disillusioned with the world. We wish that there was some insurance provider who could guarantee these benefits for us. But nowhere we, turns, see, nowhere we turn seems to be able to deliver. And this is where the text that we read a moment ago is such good news for us today. This text is essentially a Christian explanation of benefits. Look at verse 1. Therefore. The word therefore links us back to everything we talked about back before Advent. You may remember that the theme of Romans 1-4, through the first four chapters of the book, was the vast separation. We talked over and over again about how there was this vast separation between us and God. And then how Jesus came and he laid down his life to become essentially the bridge across that vast separation. So that we could be restored to a relationship with God forever. In chapters 3 and 4 especially, They were all about this idea of justification by faith. So then we come to Romans 5. And Paul begins, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we're over here now, in light of everything in chapters 1-4, through now that we're over here, now, now, he says, therefore, we have, and he goes on to enumerate all these benefits. And here's kind of my thesis today. As we look at these verses, we're going to see that relative to any other insurance provider, any other religion or worldview or philosophy or system of living that you can find in this world, Christianity offers a substantially higher level of benefit with a completely different structure of payment. That, that, that's kind of my thesis. Christianity offers a substantially higher level of benefit than you can find anywhere else. And it does so with a completely different structure of payment. So let's look, a little, let's look a little more closely at the level of benefit here. In verse 1, we see the first benefit. Paul writes, we have peace. We have peace. So we long for peace and we devote ourselves to meditation and mindfulness and all kinds of other stuff in our pursuit of peace. But here, Paul says that those who have faith in Christ already have peace. Now, when we think about peace, we tend to think of its negative significance. Peace means the absence of conflict. There's not a war going on. But biblically, peace takes on a much more holistic and positive connotation. The Old Testament Hebrew word that lies behind Paul's thought here is the word shalom. And the idea of shalom is peace, not just in that absence of conflict sense, but peace in the sense of wholeness and flourishing. It means that everything is as it ought to be. It's it's that everything is, uh, is the way that it was intended. It's all good in the hood, right? And Paul says that in Christ, believers have that shalom. We already have it. But this isn't just an inner personal peace. As important as that is, this is far bigger than that. This is peace, you'll notice, he says, with God. Peace with God. Later on, down in verses 10 and 11, Paul uses the word reconciliation to talk about this same reality. And the word reconcile is really interesting because it's a deeply relational term. To reconcile means to bring together two estranged or hostile parties and bring them back into a flourishing relationship. And this kind of language, this language of reconciliation, it is unique to the Bible. In other religions, you don't find this idea of reconciliation between people and God because other religions don't conceptualize God in such personal terms. But in the Bible... Reconciliation is the central narrative of the whole story. The story of the Bible is that people were made to live in that shalom with God. But but what happened is that all of us rejected God. We turned away from God. We rebelled against Him. And because we did, that shalom was shattered. The shalom we were meant to experience with God and the shalom we were meant to experience with others and with the world around us. It was all shattered because we turned away from God. And so the Bible, it actually roots the lack of peace that we experience in all these other areas of our life. It roots it in the more foundational lack of peace we experience between us and God. So the underlying cause of all international warfare, and all interpersonal conflict, and even all intrapersonal, inside yourself, strife that we experience, the root cause is not to be found in evils that are out there somewhere. Unjust economic systems, unfair social policies, unloving relationships. No, the the root cause, those things are evils that need to be dealt with, yes. But the root cause behind all of them is the cosmic spiritual warfare that was launched by our collective rebellion against God. We sinned and shalom was shattered. And all of us are guilty of that. If you look at verse 10, Paul says that we were enemies of God. Enemies. Apart from Christ, that is your reality. According to the Bible, there are really only two options when it comes to you and God. You are either for him and on his side, or you are against him and you are his enemy. There is no neutral. And if you're his enemy, if you're not for him, then you are against him and you are at war with him. Now here's the deal. God is the most foundational reality in the universe. And so if you don't have peace with him, if you don't have that shalom, what do you have? I mean, no matter how much you meditate, no matter how mindful you are, no matter how much yoga or Pilates you do, no matter how much now legal weed you smoke, no matter what peace you might think you have, if you are at war with God, then the peace you think you have is just a mirage. It's like this. And I'm appropriating here an illustration from my friend Mike Bullmore. But imagine that you're in this room. And in this room, there are a ton of mosquitoes, right? Love mosquitoes, right? They're great, aren't they? And you're in this room, there's a ton of mosquitoes, and the mosquitoes are just biting at you. And you're just constantly slapping them and knocking them away. And it's like, in that room, how much peace would you be experiencing? Not not a lot, right? (laughs) Like, that's not a very peaceful situation. But then you look in this room, over in the corner, And in the corner of the room, you see a hungry lion growling at you. Now, even if you were to eliminate all of the mosquitoes from the room, you slap them all and you kill them all and they're all gone, all the mosquitoes are gone. How much peace would you have in that room? Like, I mean, I suppose if you can be so mindful that you can ignore the hungry lion yeah you could feel some sense of peace right but in order to experience peace in that room you have to forget about the hungry lion growling at you in the corner but if on the other hand if all those mosquitoes are still there but somehow the lion came on your side If you were reconciled to the lion and you made peace with the lion and the lion started going after the mosquitoes with you, he starts fighting for you, that's a whole different ball game, isn't it? Now, in all honesty, I have no idea what lions do with mosquitoes, but you get the point, right? The point is that if you don't have peace with God, you don't have any real peace, And any peace you think you have is just a mirage. It's not real. You see, in real life, if the lion is your enemy, it does not matter what you do with the mosquitoes. The lion is a far bigger problem. And unless you do something with the lion, you will never have any real peace. But if somehow the lion is on your side, if the lion is with you, then you're going to be just fine. And even as verse 2 puts in our text, through faith in Christ, your reality is that you now have access to the lion. The lion is now on your side. You have access to God and to all of his goodness. Paul uses this word access, and the word access means that you have the credentials you need, you have the qualifications necessary to bring the lion with you. To go into the lion's presence, to be accepted and loved by the lion. And so bottom line, if you have peace with God, the lion is on your side. And he wants to help you deal with the mosquitoes. If you're a believer in Christ, the lion is on your side. You have peace with God. The war is over. Shalom is restored. That's the first benefit. Peace. We see the next benefit at the end of verse 2. Hope. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now when we use the word hope, we often think of it like the word want. It's uncertain, but we'd really like it if it happened this way. We hope climate change doesn't wash us all away. We hope the interview goes well. We hope the bears aren't trash again next season. But when the Bible uses the word hope, that's not what it means. Hope in scripture means a confident expectation. A confident expectation. It's like you're reading a story or you're watching a movie that you've seen before and where you already know and love the ending. You know how the story ends, and so you eagerly look forward to the end of the movie or to the final chapter of the story. You have a confident expectation of what awaits. And in the story of the Bible and in the story of the world, the final chapter is the glory of God. Now, I don't know what you think about when you picture eternity, but what the Bible pictures is summed up in that one word, glory, glory. The Bible ends with God reigning in glory in a place where everything shattered in this world is restored forever. For believers in Christ, in eternity, every tear is wiped away. And every frown is turned upside down. The cancer disappears. The broken relationship gets mended. The table is never empty. In the end, the God of glory defeats evil and reigns in glory forever. That's how the story ends. And believers in Christ know how the story ends. And so we have hope. And it's that hope that even transforms the way we approach our present circumstances. Look at verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. So often, this present life is characterized not by glory, but by suffering. The word suffering here. It's a word that literally means pressures. And when I think about that word, I think about the scene in Star Wars where uh, Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and Han Solo and Chewie, they fall into the trash compactor in the Death Star. And do you remember what happens in that scene? You know, the the walls, these big metal walls, they start squeezing them. They start moving in toward them to crush them. It's this pressure coming in to destroy them. And that's the idea of this word. And and that's life in a sin sick world, isn't it? There are all kinds of pressures that come toward us to destroy us. Some of those pressures, they come just by virtue of living in a fallen world, not getting the job you desperately long for, getting the diagnosis you desperately wanted to avoid. Losing a child to a miscarriage. Fighting against a deep depression. Dreading going home at night to a a marriage that's just difficult. Sitting in rush hour traffic on Lakeshore Drive. Everyone, everyone faces these kinds of pressures. But then there are some pressures That comes specifically as a result of being a follower of Christ in a fallen world. Having to say no to desires that the world around you celebrates. Trying to disciple your children in truth that you know their school system is trying uh, intentionally to undermine. Being ostracized at work because you live out your convictions having your family or your community reject you because you've chosen to follow Christ. Being stuck listening to the music on K-Love. Just saying, just saying. It's real, the struggle is real. Except for the last one though. These are the kinds of pressures faced by Christians all over the world throughout the history of the church. In fact, even today, around the world, there are churches that are being shut down by local police. And there are pastors who are being arrested. And there are church members who are being verbally and physically assaulted because of their commitment to Christ. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world face far greater pressures than what we're experiencing here. In fact, some of you in this room today, you came from places where that was your reality. And those are the kinds of pressures that Paul has in view as he talks about suffering here. All those various pressures that come to crush us. But look at what he says about that suffering. Verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. He says Christians rejoice in suffering not because the suffering itself is good, but because that suffering has a purpose. You see, in a secular world devoid of God, if you get rid of God, suffering has no ultimate purpose, suffering just is. This world is brutal, but you need to just deal with it. Get over yourself. There is no ultimate hope. There is no end of the story. Things might get better and they might get worse, but someday the trash compactor is going to come and finish the job and squash you like a bug. Deal with it. But for Christians, suffering is so different from that. For Christians, suffering has a purpose. In, in the short run, suffering can produce tremendous maturity in us. Notice the progression here. Suffering leads to endurance. Endurance is stick-to-itiveness. It's what it takes to run a marathon, to finish the race and sprint across the finish line. And any of you who have run the Chicago Marathon know that most of your training is suffering, right? But it's that suffering that is the only thing that enables you to go the full 26.2 miles on race day, right? Suffering produces endurance. Then, endurance produces character. The word for character here means to pass the test. To pass the test. It means to prove yourself as you endure and you keep running the race and you don't quit when it feels hard. You you pass the test. And then that tested improving character, then it produces hope. The more you endure, the more tests you pass, the more confidence you have in the glory that awaits on the other side of the finish line. So so for Paul here, he pictures hope kind of like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. Right, Adam Adam Pennington? (laughs) The more you use it, the stronger it gets. And suffering, suffering provides the opportunities we need to exercise that hope muscle so that it keeps on growing. So Christians, Christians suffer just like everybody else. We face all kinds of suffering. But Christians don't suffer just like everybody else. We suffer differently. We suffer with hope. We suffer with hope. Because we know what God is doing in us in the midst of our suffering. And because we know the end of the story, we know that in the end, we escape. And what God does then is he comes and he blows up the trash compactor along with the rest of the Death Star. And he gets rid of all the evil empire. And then we live happily ever after in glory with him. We know how the story ends. So here's what this means. If you are a believer in Christ here today, you have hope. And so even right now, Even if it feels like you've fallen into the trash compactor and the walls are pressing in on you, know today that God is doing something in you in the midst of that pressure. See your suffering as an opportunity to flex your hope muscle and grow in endurance and grow in your character. And at the same time, know that your suffering is not forever. Now I can't promise you that the the end is going to come in this life. We don't know that. Even as we pray and we plead with God that he would take away whatever you're dealing with. We don't know that that's going to come. But we do know that someday and forever, we know the end of the story. And the end of the story is glory. That's the second benefit. A sure hope that transcends even our sufferings. We see the third benefit in verse 5. Love. Our culture is obsessed with finding love. And, we, and, and look here at the love that Paul writes about. Paul writes, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Paul says that this hope we have, it doesn't let us down, it doesn't disappoint us. And the reason for that is because of the love of God that we get to experience even now even before the hope becomes our present reality. Paul writes here, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Now this is the first reference in the book of Romans to the love of God. First time it shows up here. And notice the way Paul describes it. He says it has been poured into our hearts. So this language is emotional language. This is a subjective, experiential thing. He's saying when you believe in Christ, you get to feel the love that God has for you. You get to feel it. And the way in which that happens, he writes, is through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now when we get to Romans 8 a couple months from now, we'll talk a lot more about the Holy Spirit there. But the Holy Spirit, today you need to know this, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, fully God. He is a person, not some kind of ethereal force, not an it. He is a person. And when you believe in Christ, he comes and he takes up residence in your heart. He lives in you in order to give you an internal assurance of God's presence with you and love for you. The Holy Spirit lives in you and makes you experientially aware of God's love. So we feel God's love because God lives in us. So this is a subjective, experiential side of knowing God's love for us. But the confidence believers can have in God's love doesn't stop there. It's not just experiential. And in fact, as most any honest Christian will testify, there are plenty of times where we don't feel God's love, right? Like maybe that's where you're at right now. You're in a a spiritually dry season. Or or you're going through some stuff that makes it really hard to feel like God loves you. That's not an uncommon experience in the Christian life. And that's why Paul goes on to say what he says in verses 6-8. through Walk with me through that section. Here's what he writes. He says, for while we were still weak, the word weak here means sick or spiritually ill, morally helpless is kind of the idea. While we were in that kind of condition, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die, only in rare instances. It would be really hard to find someone who would do something like this. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps, maybe on a very unique rare occasion, for a good person one would dare even to die. But, verse 8, and this is how we know God loves us even when we don't feel it. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, even when we weren't good people, even when we were still his enemies and we were rebels against him, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. In these verses, Paul is highlighting how absolutely nuts it is that Jesus died for people like us. J.D. Greer, a pastor, he points out that this is not like you dying for one of your children. This is like you dying for a terrorist who murdered one of your children, right? Like this is how crazy that is, giving your life for someone who does not deserve it in the very least, and yet that is what Christ did for us to prove his love for you. And the fact that he did is the reason why even if you don't feel God's love all the time, you can always know that God loves you. Notice the language in verse 8. God shows his love for us. So this is not the internal experiential evidence like we saw in verse 5. This is the external historical evidence of God's love. This is the objective reality of what Jesus did for you. Whether you feel it or not, it is true. He gave his life for you to show you his great love for you. And so when you really think about it, when you put it all together, this is the most sure love you could ever find. It is both subjective and objective. It is internal and external. It is experiential and historical. It is emotional and factual. And that's the kind of love I think our world is desperately seeking. That's why people swipe right on Tinder. They're trying to find somebody who will make them feel loved and then prove that love to them through their actions. But right here, we have a love that far surpasses anything you're going to find in any human relationship. God swiped right on you with a love that began before you responded, a love that persists even when you fail, and a love that literally lasts forever. That's the third benefit. So peace, hope, love, the benefits. Now in verses 9 and 10, Paul brings all of this together into a synthesis that reiterates and expands the central point of his whole argument. On the screen behind me, you can see how verses 9 and 10 are really parallel statements of the same point. I won't read them again, but notice the highlighted line Much more shall we be saved. Everything we've just talked about adds up to a confident expectation of ultimate salvation. We will be saved from the wrath of God and from all that plagues us in this world forever. The lion is on our side and he will blow up the death star and bring us to glory. Ultimate salvation. So the first part of my thesis earlier was that Christianity offers a substantially higher level of benefit. And all of what we just talked about is why. Peace, hope, love, salvation. You cannot find those kind of benefits to that degree anywhere else. But the benefits themselves aren't all. The second part of my thesis was that these benefits come with a completely different structure of payment. In the religions of the world, and even in the world of meditation and mindfulness, the benefits you gain are all based on what you do. It's about your works, your performance. If you meditate enough, or if you offer enough sacrifices, or if you help enough people, then you'll earn favor with the gods, or you'll achieve inner peace, or you'll go to heaven when you die. It's all about you. And even in many churches that y'all have attended in your lives, that's the same kind of message that gets communicated. Be a good person, and God will love you and, and bless you because you've been good. But you've got to pay the bill yourself. God helps those who help themselves. You've heard that, right? But biblical Christianity doesn't work like that. Notice again how we are described in these verses. Verse 6, weak, morally helpless, ungodly. Verse 8, sinners. Verse 10, enemies. Y'all, if in real life we were seriously applying for health insurance, we would be denied by every company in the world based on the severity of our pre-existing condition. There is no insurer in their right mind who would take on a client with the kind of bills that we are going to rack up. Our performance is not going to cut it. And yet notice how all these benefits come to us. Verse 1, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through Him. Verse 5, God's love and God's spirit are given to us. Verse 6, Christ died for us. Verse 8, Christ died for us. Verse 9, by his blood and by him. Verse 10, by the death of his son and by his life. And verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all, do you know what this is? This is the ultimate single-payer health care plan. Elizabeth Warren has nothing on this. Jesus pays the bill for everybody who signs up with him. The plan is free. There are no co-pays. There is not even a hint in these verses of us doing anything to earn it or deserve it. He pays it all. So this is not Obamacare. This is Jesus' care. And it is the only care that you ultimately need now and forever. And the way you sign up for it is what we see in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what God asks of you is not your performance, but your trust. He asks you to cancel every other insurance policy you got and to go all in on trusting him. You don't rely on your good deeds, on your good work, on your moral or religious performance you cancel all those plans and you sign up with Jesus by putting your full trust in him. Now to be clear, I'm not telling you to go cancel your literal health insurance. Just (laughs) keep that. But is it when it comes to your religious and moral performance, cancel that. Go all in on Jesus. By faith, sign up with him. And the instant you do that, all of these benefits, all of them are yours. All of them. And here's where we'll finish this morning. We've seen that Christianity gives you what amounts to an infinitely higher level of benefit with a completely different structure of payment. So, what do we do? We do what Paul tells us to do three times in this text. Verse two, we rejoice in hope. Verse three, we rejoice even in our suffering. And verse 11, finally. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of all that God has done for us in Christ, we rejoice not in the benefits themselves, but we rejoice in the provider. The provider who guarantees those benefits for us. We rejoice in God. The word rejoice here, it's the same word translated boast Elsewhere in Romans. It means to take pride in, to glory, to exalt, to lift up and praise and celebrate with all that you got. And in light of all that God has done for us in Christ, rejoicing like that is the only logical response. Genuine believers in Christ are marked by that kind of rejoicing in God. We praise God with our whole beings. And we have joy in God in all circumstances. Because in all circumstances, we have Him. He is with us. And so no matter how many mosquitoes are biting at you right now, no matter how crushing the trash compactor feels at this particular moment, no matter what is happening in your life, If you truly believe and understand the gospel, then you can have joy. You can still have joy no matter what your circumstances. Because your joy, it is not dependent on your circumstances. Your joy is dependent on the lion to whom you have been reconciled. The lion who is now on your side and in your corner. The lion who loves you with a ferocious love. And the lion who will one day bring the story to a glorious end. And whenever you find yourself lacking in joy, remember that truth. And then rejoice. Rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in you today. We praise you for the extraordinary benefits that we have in Jesus. We praise you for the peace and the hope and the love and the salvation and the reconciliation and the grace and the abundant goodness that you have bestowed upon us not because of anything done by us but because of your grace and mercy and love through your son Jesus i pray today god that we would receive all of those benefits i pray for those who are experiencing a lack of peace or feeling a lack of hope, or feeling unloved today, God, would they receive those benefits? Would they feel encouraged this morning? I pray, God, you would mark us with your joy as we remember all that you've done for us. Help us to receive all of that today. And we give you praise, we celebrate you, we exalt you, we rejoice in you for the great things you have done, and for the greatness of who you are. We pray that in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.